Hello, this is your host, Paul Harvey at Life, Passion and Business. I realise I put this at the end of the programme most of the time. And I also realise I don't often listen to the end of podcasts. So I thought about it, i tell you here before we get started. So the first thing is this podcast is not supported in any way. We have no sponsorship. So if you would like to support us, do check out the Buy Me A Coffee link on this podcast app. And you also find it at the website. Now, also, if you are interested in the five questions and would like to answer them yourself, do check out the resources tab at the website because the five questions is available as a workbook and an ebook. And if you want to know why that's important, check out the end of the podcast or go and check out the resources tab at the website. That's enough for me. Let's get on with the program. My name is Paul Harvey, and you are listening to Life, Passion and Business, a podcast born out of my desire to find greater meaning in life at the time when I thought there was none. Since that day, I have spoken to hundreds of people, and what I have discovered is that our story is everything, because what we do, feel or experience is based on the stories that we tell ourselves. It's time to explore what it means to live a good life. How do we make this experience better? And more importantly, how do we lead the world to a better place? I thought economic development was sort of, in some ways, helping create a better world. And I realised I wasn't really sure that it was, or not the sort of world that I wanted to create. Yeah. I didn't want to help people make money out of sort of selling sticking plasters to try, you know, for a broken world. What was also very influential on me was sort of the, the G8 protests that were happening around that sort of time. I think there were some bigger G8 protests in Australia, and later on they claimed there was one in, in uh, when it came to Glen Eagles, I think. And I wasn't directly involved in any of those. This, this idea that people were sort of challenging not just the problems that were happening and saying we need to have more sticking plasters, but saying well, actually the rule of the economy needs to change. We need to do things differently as a society, as an economy. My guest on the programme today is Osbert Lancaster, and he is a sustainability expert who has been in the field even before the word sustainability was in common use. He spent the first part of his career back in the 90s explaining what sustainability was to companies who were employing him as a consultant. Our conversation is his journey towards that life choice. His early years were spent travelling with his parents who were social anthropologists, living in various places around the Middle East. He got a sense, a real sense of what community was and how to live a simple, normal life. At some point he did a stint in boarding school, as you do when your parents travel, and ultimately he went to university to study agriculture. And after various twists and turns, he found himself in economic development. And while working in Poland, he realised that economic development... He realised it was more about putting a sticking plaster on the failures of society and creating business opportunities out of other people's misery. That discovery led Osbert to explore the idea of sustainability and sustainable development. And he has never looked back. Our conversation, the second part of our conversation, explores the idea of leadership, personal leadership in companies and in the sustainability field. Well worth a listen. This podcast is in two parts because it's quite long. The first part will explore Osbert's life and the second part will explore the sustainability process and how you bring that in, how you bring leadership in that process into your business or into your life generally. The second podcast will be available shortly, so please make sure you're following this podcast so you get notification when it arrives. 
Anyway, in the meantime, I hope you enjoy the conversation with Osbert Lancaster. Osbert, thank you so much for being here with me today and having this exploration of your life and the journey you've been on. So where did it all begin for you? Well, where it all began, I guess, really, is that my childhood was unusual. I spent it, spent most of my, a lot of my childhood in the Middle East. My <clears> parents were both social anthropologists studying the tribes in the, in the Middle East, in Jordan and Saudi Arabia. And that was, that was really influential and sort of influenced me in a lot of ways. It was about sort of, um, you know, really, and I only, only realised how it influenced me sort of looking back on it, because as a kid, everything sort of seems normal. Mm. Looking back on it, what I realised was I was being exposed to two very different ways of ways of living um, in sort of in, in living in the UK and, and, then, and then living in the Middle East. And this, what really came through looking back on it is that this, this real sense of, of community that is so important as community and a sense of extended family that's so important in the Middle East. And I think we've, it's, there's a lot of vestiges of that in, in the UK as well, but increasingly over the years, that's become lost as we become more and more individualistic. Mm. Um, so in the Middle East, I mean, this was when you were, what sort of age were you out there? Yes, you... I was sort of between the ages of seven and 14 until I started having to go to boarding school and stuff and back in the UK. That's quite a formative years to be exposed to that kind of stuff. I mean, did you make friends? Did you make local friends or were you in an expat type community? No, not at all an expat community. My parents were, as I said, social anthropologists studying the, this tribe in northern northern Jordan. And part of the deal, because they um, you know, had to ask permission from the tribe, the sheikh of the tribe to be there. And yeah, the deal, well, he, he asked his mother and his mother said, well, the deal is you have to live like us, behave like us, eat like us, and yeah, you're welcome and um, behave oh, no, properly. So you weren't a fussy child then, but you were eating some very strange food. Uh, yeah, probably. <laughs> no sheep size. Sheep size are a myth. <laughs> Not sheep size is a myth, yes. There's, yeah. only, there's only two in every one in every sheep, aren't there? So. Well, they sort of dissolve when you boil the sheep anyway, so that's a, that's a bit of a myth. <laughs> oh, there we are. There we go. Yeah. So obviously you came home and you obviously went to boarding school, so that must have been quite a shift of culture for you to go, go from living... I guess it was quite a free and easy childhood being out in Amman in Jordan and stuff. Yeah, free and easy and free and easy in lots of ways. <laughs> Huge mm. amount of freedom to go and just get on and do stuff as a kid. Mm. But also, I think a lot of expect, and partly because I was the oldest son as well, um, a lot of, sort of expectation to behave responsibly, behave like an adult. Mm. I think, you know, I think in a lot of like in, like in a lot of cultures, this idea of you know, childhood, perhaps you know, sort of what's yeah, childhood finishes sooner and you're expected to be responsible for your own actions, look out for other people much, much sooner than you are in, are in, are in the West. Um, yeah. And sort of boarding school was a, was a really strange experience. Um, I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't wish it on anyone. Not that there was any sort of horrendously, you know, sort of lurid stories of bullying or whatever to, to share, but it was just like, Really strange. Well, I, I mean, I, what, I, I found the whole sort of concept of what year was you and you in boarding school? What years were these? What? So this was sort of um, fourth, fifth, and sixth year. But what years? What was the year? Oh, sorry, years of the years of yeah, the, yeah. So this would have been early seventies. Early seventies. So they still yeah. had the vestige. Mid 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 seventies. So yeah, those mid- those boarding schools would have still had the vestige of the colonial kind of boarding school. They would have still had that history about them in some way, wouldn't they? In terms, yeah, of, definitely. So in terms, like, of, you know, in terms of status and. I, I guess all the teachers wore, did the teachers wear gowns and that sort of stuff? Was it a few of them did. A few of them did. Yeah, uh, yeah there, there was, there was, it, wasn't, it wasn't a sort of a 
there would have been a formality. There would have been a formality to it, I imagine. There was a formality to it, um, and there was, you know, so a lot, a lot of the other, you know, a lot of my friends, you know, one of them was like his father was a high court judge in 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 Hong Kong. <laughs> Another one was, you know, there was, you know, general in the army. Uh, someone else was high up in the air force. Oh, wow. you know, all that sort of stuff. So it's sort of, you know, where the kids were dumped while mm. parents went off and did stuff around, not quite around the empire because um, there wasn't much left by then. But um, before this is before, you know, that boarding school now I'm told is pretty much, uh, you know, most of the most of the pupils there are um, are Asian these days, like many other boarding schools. And the market, yeah, that market has really shifted. <clears throat> yes, I'm sure it has. What they make of it, I, I mean, I hope, presumably, presumably the schools have changed as well. I hope so. Um, <laughs> well, I guess the, 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 it's about creating young gentlemen, isn't it? It's it's, it's creating a person of a certain st- a certain style. I'm assuming. I can't. I, I can't imagine it. I guess they must have changed some to some extent. But yeah, yeah. I'd be interesting interesting to find out how they've changed. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, you left. You, so you're in boarding school. You you came out of that, and obviously with some, with some education. I guess you went to college. Yeah, I went off to study agriculture at Edinburgh. Um, right. Yeah, and sort of partly because in the meantime, my parents had, as well as at some point, they moved from their base in the UK being Norfolk, they moved up to Orkney. Um, it's a long story, we won't go into that. They moved to Orkney, had a sheep farm in Orkney while also working in the Middle East some of the time. Very strange. Well, I, what I do find strange about that on some level is Middle East, hot. Norfolk, pretty hot. Orkney, living freezing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But, um, a lot of sheep in both Orkney and in uh, and in Jordan. So that was um, okay. it's actually quite interesting. That was actually <clears throat> that actually made them seem more like real people when they were speaking to people in the Middle East because they could discuss sheep and you know <clears throat> rates and stuff like that rather than just being who are these straight? What's an anthropologist? What are you doing? Why are you studying us? Go back sheep instead. So you got interested in farming because I got interested parents. in farming, yeah. and I also yeah. had this sort of idea that yeah, I wanted to do something useful in the world. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so it's like agriculture seemed like a sensible thing to do. I was good at biology at school, and what I actually discovered after I graduated was well, first of all, I discovered that actually it wasn't nearly as I just didn't really sort of get. I didn't really get higher education really until it was too late until the until the end of the end of my studies. Um, and was this like, an agricultural? Was this actual university doing an agricultural? Yeah, yeah. So it's a university. There's agricultural colleges, aren't there? And they actually yeah, teach, a, they're actually teaching you to be a farmer and not to be a farmer. Yeah, so it was places. really quite a strange degree because it was <clears> it was just sort of a joint degree essentially between it was a collaboration between what was then Edinburgh College of Agriculture and Edinburgh University. Mm. So basically, a lot of it. What you know, there was also people doing a I quite remember, HNDs and those sorts of things, you know, sort of certificate to grant degrees mm. in how to be a farmer but then because it was a university we were supposed to be sort of doing it like as academics and sort of trying to you know, sort of learn trying to study the science of it and the theory of it as well as sort of well how do you actually do it so it was quite a strange strange sort of mix like, it, it, it didn't really suit me i must say did you get out to do much farming in the process we went and visited lots of because you know, the university in those days had quite a lot of farms around around edinburgh right. um and we went and visited those and that was that was really interesting, and again, that was actually pretty formative of me. On me, and one of those, I guess, there was two particular experiences there. One was um, visiting the uh, the chicken farm, mm-hmm. and then like, in these days, it would probably be considered quite a small chicken farm, but it was you know fairly big in those days. And basically, going into this shed with no you know, no 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 natural light and just all these sort of rows and rows of cages and artificial lights with all these chickens shoved in these cages and laying eggs 
on sitting on wire cages and the eggs rolling onto the cage and floor rolling down a little chute and blah 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 and they were sort of crammed in there and the smell was undescribable the mm. smell of the ammonia and the urea you know, basically it was just vile mm. and you know they were all being kept to the highest welfare standards of because it was you know it was a demonstration farm but it was just really not nice and the pig farm again was sort of similar sort of thing it's like this this doesn't really feel like how things should be it was really you know that was that was really clear to me um so a that really that didn't make me a vegetarian but it put me on to but you know never eating trying to, to always avoid battery farmed food mm. of any any sort um but it also really got me interested in the whole that whole sort of idea of animal welfare and how do you how can you actually create farming systems which are good for you know better not actually good for the animals but better for the animals so that was only only towards the end of that i had a chance to actually start studying animal psychology and animal behavior that actually got sort of interested in what i was actually studying until then it was like well, i was turned up to lectures and wrote the essays and thought what's all what's this all about um but that was only i only sort of discovered that like this spark you're supposed to discover in higher education you know right at right at the end of the degree which is a bit of a shame it is, isn't it? And it's like that's that's the one thing about that, that Phil seems missing education somehow. We we seem to have forgotten that we the idea of education should be to light a fire, really, not to fill a pail. You know? Yeah. And it's yeah. like if you really could get education to light the fire in people, what would it be like if everybody was hungry to learn? Yeah, it's weird. It's a weird one. I, I've I've done some teaching um, and teaching at master's level at, at Edinburgh University, <clears throat> and one of the things I found there was you know. And I guess that sort of people that they've done their first degree and they've suddenly thought, hang on, I've done, I've studied all this stuff, but now I want to do something that I can mm. apply as a job because mm. they've done something interesting rather than a profession, you know, becoming, mm. you know, studying to become an accountant or something. And they think, okay, they want to do sustainability. So they do a, a master's, which is something to do with sustainability. And I was teaching on some of them. But I think what I found was like, people, there was, you know, they were, most of those students are really passionate and motivated, but the way that which, and maybe it's changed, it was a few years back now, but you know, so much of emphasis, the way you know, academia is structured, it's about achieving grades and it's about working as an individual and people are being sort of forced to compete with each other, essentially, to get to the top. Um, and there's no sort of let up. There's not really space for to think and reflect and have proper you know, sort of deep sort of discussions about well, what are we actually really trying to do here? Mm. Um, so I, found, you know, I really I enjoyed my time teaching. There's some lovely students and some other great members of staff, and there's some interesting experiments going on here and there. But overall, it, it's often felt like, yeah, you know, there was so much potential to do so much more. Particularly if they if if they're doing this together, jobs, then there's a whole different focus on the process. It's about getting the grade and getting 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 the 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 right report, the right the right tick boxes, so they can tell me, I got this. There's, a, there's, a, there's a, yeah, definitely, definitely an element of that. I think there's mm. also, though, there's, and again, again, maybe I'm sure it has changed, but there's been this sort of this, because academia has always been so focused on the individual <clears throat> in the workplace. It's about how do you work with others? How do you work mm. as a team? Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a really difficult tension. A lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of courses are doing, you know, group work and so on. What I found was students were really resistant to doing group work. Because they basically they wanted to get the best grade. They were really worried that someone else wouldn't pull their weight. They'd get dropped, you know, get dragged yes. down, and yes. all that sort of stuff. So that brought in a whole amount of tension <clears throat> that was unhealthy and un- un- unnecessary. Yes, yeah, yeah. I've heard that before from other people. That I mean, what you're expected to do out in the workplace is completely different. From what you're expected to what you're expected to do in university. Interesting. 
So what, what did it lead you after that? What did, what, did, what did you end up going into after you, after you left education? Yeah, so after a bit of a sort of detour, um, bit of a detour, uh, yeah, followed my wife, my, well, my, my girlfriend, then my girlfriend, <laughs> now my wife, followed her down to London where she was doing a, she was doing a post-grad course for a couple of years. And what I uh, got a temporary, what started off as a temporary job, it turned into a permanent job for about three, three years or so with a garden centre group down there. And that was sort of interesting. I We had a, had a consultant coming in. I got quite interested in this, you know, what this consultant was doing. That's right. Yeah, so we had this consultant working with us. And I just thought that was really quite an interesting job. You can sort of go around, you can ask questions, you can see all these different businesses, you can give them advice, you can help them do what they need to do. And it's like, that sounded really, yeah, sounds much more fun than um, selling geraniums and stuff. Mm. So I that sort of led me on to heading off and doing an MBA. I'd moved back to Edinburgh by this point, did an MBA in Edinburgh and moved into working in economic development, uh, economic development, moved to working in an economic development consultancy in Glasgow for about three years. Economic development, is that, is that, does that happen in the UK or is that, because I always hear of economic development happening in overseas countries, or was that, is that anywhere? Yeah, it can be, it can be happening anywhere, um, mm. but, and a lot of it, I guess, a lot of it in the, there's a lot of, a lot of it in the UK, which is about, you know, helping small businesses, you know, helping create small businesses, helping people start up small businesses, uh, and so what uh, what actually is economic development because i mean it's it's quite it sounds like quite a broad title yeah like uh, basically How you like define it, it? So, so it's a long it's a long time since i was working in it so what they call it these days i'm not quite sure but back then it was basically about this is back in the when would be now sort of late mid late 90s mm. so um sort of post thatcher unemployment was pretty high a lot of the Industrialization had deindustrialization had happened. Okay, a lot of big can, employers had moved so away. There, there was lots of opportunity. So like a need of, yeah. to create yes. jobs, yeah. start up new businesses and stuff. So that was what it's all about then. Yeah, and so we did. So the consultant, a small consultancy I worked for, we did a lot of work in in Scotland, mm-hmm. um, helping sort of fill some of those gaps. That was the idea, anyway. Mm-hmm. Left by the you know the decline of big industry, um, but we also started working in in Eastern Europe. And this was when Berlin Wall had fallen. Mm. Um, lots of money was being pumped by by the EU into Eastern Europe to help them develop their economies, transition from communism to capitalism. Um, yeah, and we got sort of involved in that because it was a, for a lot of consultants, not me. I was mean, just a you know junior employee. I didn't get anything out of it particularly, but it was like a big gravy train, Eastern European you know, European money for. Eastern Europe for a lot of a lot of that's been quite interesting, hasn't it? You think about going into the because those countries had literally frozen in space and time, hadn't they? Really, because of the Soviet era. Yeah, and so when yeah when they when the war came down, there was a mighty kind of catch up job to to be done, hasn't there? In that respect, yeah, definitely. And it was it was you know I got to have got to have a couple of you know several trips there to go and do some do some works that work there. Um, And it was yeah, it was really fascinating, really interesting. yeah, and right. yeah, did you, did you stay in that area for long? Um, no, I decided after a bit. I decided to really needed to move on, and the, so the the reason for that was it actually was because of this work in Eastern Europe. Yeah, and one of the things, one of the projects I was working on was to try and create business opportunities for Scottish firms in Poland, um, so they could export stuff to Poland and mm. you know all, all that sort of good stuff, and. 
So we had some sort of report that had been produced by some other consultants about you know, what are the business opportunities across Eastern Europe for Western European countries. And we were working for some reason, our sort of focus was in, was in Poland, particularly Northern Poland, Gdansk. And the business opportunities that this report for the EU had identified were, there were three of them. The first one was security. Second one was care of the elderly. And the third one was childcare. Mm. And for me, that was a like, that was really weird. There's a big sort of shift, sort of shift for me, you know, when I started working that through, thinking about it. What I realized was that we were sort of looking for seeing business opportunities in the failure of society in Poland, essentially. You know, the, the, the need for security was caused by the fact that this shift had created huge amounts of unemployment leading to huge amounts of crime and underemployment and crime. Care of the elderly was happening because their elder care, you know, health, health service was falling apart. And the same with childcare that had all been defunded with, um, you know, these new, new um, you know, sort of monetary, you know, these new economic policies dictated by the IMF. Mm. So this was the, the failure of society and that was creating a business, business opportunities, which felt something, I felt that was something deeply wrong going there. Didn't know what it was, why it was, but it, uh, I wasn't, wasn't happy with it. What is also interesting is in terms of your early upbringing in Oman, not Oman, in, in Jordan, which was community-based, where they looked after the young people and the elderly. Absolutely, yeah. So I can, so. I can see why that would kind of like that would kind of like really great with your uh, yeah. with your sensibilities and, and early values. Absolutely, absolutely. And you know, given that back then the NHS wasn't in the sort of state it is now, it was like, well, why wouldn't you yeah. do that sort of stuff? Why wouldn't you look after people, you know, either end of their lives? Yeah. So yeah, for me, I I, I know it's really came really clear to me that what I thought. I'd thought economic development was sort of, in some ways, helping create a better world. And I realised I wasn't really sure that it was, or not the sort of world that I wanted to create. Yeah. I didn't want to help people make money out of sort of selling sticking plasters to try, you know, for a broken world. Yeah. Um, and around the same sort of time as well, this was, I can, I'm not quite sure of the exact sort of time, how all this fitted together, but, you know, what was also very influential on me was sort of the, the G8 protests that were happening around that sort of time. I think there were some bigger G8 protests in Australia, and later on, they claimed there was one in, in uh, when it came to Glen Eagles, I think. And I wasn't directly involved in any of those. This, this idea that people were sort of challenging not just the problems that were happening and saying we need you know, more sticking plasters, but saying, well, actually, the rule of the economy needs to change. We need to do things differently as a society, as an economy. Mm. And the idea that, well, we, had a, you know, we, could, make, we could help change them. You know, the, the way the world worked isn't sort of a given that we have to just take and accept. So I really decided then and there that that's, you know, I needed to find out more about sustainability or you know, whatever I was calling it in my head at the time. I needed to find out more about that. And that's where I wanted to really to spend my time in my work. And did you change job accordingly? Yeah. So I mean, it was um, by that stage, I'd already sort of shifted and was working with a, um, um, basically you know, working, providing business advice to small business, SMEs, small, small and medium-sized businesses outside Edinburgh. Mm -hmm. And which is sort of different and more you know, a bit more interesting, but it was still in with that economic development space. But I got really interested in sort of sustainability and environmental issues and got in touch with a small um, NGO. It was originally then it was part of Edinburgh University, later spun out as an independent NGO uh, that was doing a lot of stuff around what sort of becomes sustainability and started working with them first as a volunteer, 
and then getting more and more actively involved. And eventually I managed to start getting some fundraising together and created a sustainability, a sort of business and sustainability program. So trying to bring these two things together, think, well, how can businesses contribute to sustainability? What year was that? Oh God, I need to, I need to go through LinkedIn or my CV to work out exactly. Because it's like, that is quite, quite forward thinking. Yeah. So this was, I mean, sustainability really only started to hit the, hit the kind of business world in the, in the 2000s as such. This would have been been late nineties. Yeah. 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 Late, late nineties, sort of 98, 99. I mean, mean, the saddest thing, I saw some stats recently that 50% of all the car ones ever been admitted only only actually happened since we started using the word sustainability, but there we go. That's a nice one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Since anybody came into the vernacular, we carried on yeah. regardless. Uh, That's right. Like, we'll put it over the label and no one will notice. Yeah. Yeah. So that, you know, that was sort of really, you know, I was like, That's, so that was my sort of shift. So I, I managed to you know, get a bit so, of funding, was able to work part-time doing that while working part-time on the, with, with the small business stuff. Wow. And eventually sort of grew that and managed to, managed to make it turn it into a full-time, full-time role. And I've been doing that in different ways ever since. Fantastic. So what's been, dri- I mean, what's the, the, what's been driving you through this? I mean, there's a passion there somewhere, isn't there? It's obviously ecology. It's something to do with society, by the sounds of it. There's quite a lot of values in there for you, isn't there? Yeah, very much so. It's, I think fundamentally this is about, for me, it's what I'm really passionate about is helping people take action on this mm. stuff. You know, you can study it and learn it and watch documentaries about it forever. I think that's one of the things also sort of often frustrated me about academia is people studying this stuff and saying, oh my God, look, the world is falling apart. Um, okay, well, what are we going to do about it? Well, we're academic. I mean, this, it, that's changed a lot with academics have come and scientists have become much more activist in the last sort of five, 10 years. But yeah, for me, what's really important is about how can we take action on climate, particularly mm-hmm. the climate and nature crises. And sometimes people say, well, you know, but what about the humans? Well, you know, we're sort of, you know, sort of like this focus on environment isn't really helpful. It's like it's, we need to bring the bring the, sort of the social aspects into that. For me, I see them as completely and utterly intertwined. Um, and perhaps the reason I talk a lot about more about climate and nature is because that's actually a very sort of an easy way for a lot of people to get into it. Um, if you start looking, bringing it, coming at this from a sort of social perspective, um, that makes it often feel a bit too close to politics. It becomes a bit sort of bit edgy. Um, whereas climate and nature, we all know we need to do something. And we can, that's a really good entry point for lots of people. And we'll get to that when we yeah. get to the next part of that conversation. And I think a lot of that is about empowering people to think they can, but it'd be interesting to have that conversation. Yeah. So in that all that time, what was your success model? Because you, you went through quite a lot of iterations of life in terms of how you get that journey. How did you define success at that time? Oof. Yes. Success for me was about, with all of that, it's about feeling that I was making a difference, feeling I was doing something worthwhile. Mm. That's fundamentally it. Um, and at times I felt I was making a difference and at times I didn't feel I was making a difference, but uh, try, you know, yeah. And that's um, part of that is about what I was doing and maybe it wasn't making much of a difference. And part of it was also about, yeah, just realizing the limitations of what we can actually do as individuals. None of us are superheroes. And I think we're sort of often, often it's sort of held up that, you know, one person can do all this and create these great things. And when you dig into that, actually, there's a whole team of people around them 
No, Edison was always poked about as being this, this, uh, I always always taught Edison was this solo amazing inventor. Then I only, when I realized years later, he had hundreds of people, thousands of people working for him. Yeah. 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 So I think there's, I think there's for a lot, I think that's you know, this myth of, I think that's a real problem with so much of stuff in the West around sustainability and everything else is this, <laughs> this cult of the individual. Yeah, um, which causes yeah. so much problems for the individual and for society because it's, anyway, that's a bit, getting off a bit of a tangent there. But I think that's no, but it's a very valid point because the e, e, the East don't have that so much. You know, the, the the cultures in in China and those sort of places is very much about it is the individual, and there is a lot of individualism happens out there. But there's also a lot of it. Well, it's about us as well because we're all the yeah. same. We're all the same. And there was an example that I I heard somewhere of a guy talking who was working in China just before covid or around that sort mm -hmm. of time and he was okay he was talking about traveling somewhere and someone said no you can't do that he said, but i'm fine we're fine he said, no 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 if something were to happen it would reflect badly on us in this area you can't do that yeah yeah and that's you know that's the that's the difference you know yes you can do it but no 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 you shouldn't so it's interesting yeah, yeah very different absolutely. very different philosophies in life yeah i think that's really in some way i suspect like okay not that perhaps Eastern cultures have been any better at sustainability than we have, but uh, it's a but I think one part of the part of the problem we have here in tackling sustainability is it's sort of almost seen as being there are two options: either we need the government and big business to change their policies and do things differently. You know, it's like we can all we can all sort of sit around moaning and campaigning and think they should do something differently. <clears throat> Alternatively, it's like. The only thing we can do is each of us individually can make a difference by, you know, using using less water because the water level is getting low, and um, you know, using our cars less or switching to electric. It's all about us as a consumer mm. or as a citizen. We can vote every however many years it is. But what's really missing in so much of the discussion around sustainability is how do we take active? How do we take action? Collective action. How do we come together with other people to take action? Whether that's in communities and in neighborhoods, whether that's in in businesses, whether that's in, you know organizations collaborating across a city or a city region and supply chains, and mm. that's 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 happening, but it's not. That's always it's not sort of the immediate sort of go to answer. My sense of it is it's got to happen. You've got to drag the politics in. You've got to create a vacuum and drag the politics into the vacuum. It's like if everybody. It's like when you and I were children, everyone drank, drank, drank beer and drove a car and no one had any thought about it. You had a drink and you got in a car and you drove home and country pubs were, you know, where you went and you drove home afterwards. It was quite normal. And now no one would even consider doing that anymore. I mean, yeah, people do, but it's not considered good etiquette to yeah. do that anymore. Yeah. yeah. And the vacuum that's created politics filled it. So, so that, that's what gets me. Like, is, is if enough people turn around and say, no, this is not good enough, politics has no choice but to go there. I think you're yeah. seeing this now because the Labour Party in the UK is starting to talk very seriously about, about climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the there's, a sort of, yeah. there's a sort of, like, who's going to move first thing going on? You know, you've, got, you've got politicians saying, we can't do anything because no one will support us if we, if we lead on this. Well, Scottish politicians don't want to talk about oil, do they? Because they no, they, they're going to they're piss off large percentages of people that make their living out of oil. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, we've got, you know, people saying, 
they'll say, well, we can't do anything at a community level or in businesses because government mm. aren't setting the right policies. They aren't making, you know, they're funding the wrong things. The tax system doesn't support the transition we need. So, Oh, there's a lot well, of things they could do policy-wise that would exactly. make a transition like, a lot easier. No, no, no one wants to jump first. And I think no, it's like, no, no, no. yeah, it's just like, yeah, it's about helping. You call it, if you think about it as a vacuum, I thinking about it as like my metaphors about, well, how do we get people to jump and say, well, we can, regardless, I was going to say, okay, what they're doing, but regardless of what they're doing, well, let's just do this. Yes. Let's show them the way. Let's lead yes. on this. Lead yes. in the widest sense. Let's let's just do something and see where we get to. Um, mm. And that's about creating, yeah, showing that it's possible and bringing others with you and giving the confidence. You I mean, need to give the confidence to politicians that mm. actually you know, most people, and the research backs this up again and again, you know, most people in the world do care about what's going on. They do care about climate change. They do care about nature. They do care what's happening in our society. And actually, I think most people are actually looking for some decent leadership on this. Challenges, well, well you know, actually doing And they want to know way. that they're going to be safe and their job's going to be safe. Absolutely. That's, that's the thing. And Absolutely. that's why I think that's why I think that's the, Labour yeah. have started this thing about we're going to create green jobs. The whole yeah. focus is on jobs, jobs, jobs. I've noticed that. Yeah. I think it's very good. Yeah, we're going to get to this because this is an interesting topic. But let's carry on with my questions. Yeah. Contribution. I mean, obviously, you've done a lot in the sustainability world, so that's a lot of your contribution by the sounds of it. But what do you think your contribution is? I think the most sort of. And putting aside, I suppose, the point. I think you know what I do in my work. I just see that as part of my contribution. It's like mm. I'm just, you know, that's my life. But the sort of specific thing I think is um, the podcast we started. I'm going to make started with my colleagues um, earlier this year which is called Leadership for Sustainability. And that's really designed for, I know, the audience for that is sustainability directors and managers. That's who its core audience is. But it's equally relevant to anyone who's working in a sort of a management position, mainly, but others as well, but, you know, in a business or an organisation who cares about sustainability and wants to try and bring about change. Mm. Um, so our sort of, you know, the, the aim of that is really to help those people who care about this and have got a role in doing this to help them to get results they need and to make more of a difference in the world. Mm. And when I've, you know, when I was researching it, I was, I was quite. My colleagues said a while back, they said, "Oh, we should set up a po podcast." And I was like, "Oh God, I'm not sure I really want to do that," and for all sorts of reasons. I thought someone must be doing that sort of stuff. So I did a lot of research. I you know, searched all these podcast directories and stuff. I couldn't find the sort of anything like the sort of podcast we wanted to create, which was. Either there was no need for it, a market for it, or else there was. I'm not quite sure which. But what I, I say, I'm not a big podcast listener myself, but in part of this sort of research, I signed, you know, subscribed to lots of them and listened to lots of them around sustainability. And what I found was that there's a lot of ones that are really interesting. But basically what they're mainly doing is telling you how bad the problem is. <laughs> um, and how bad the problem is and the you know the, the sort of more we study it the more difficult it looks although or they're talking about sort of big policy developments that are happening it's really interesting maybe really interesting if you're a policy geek or a news geek um but you know actually the detail of what's happening in a cop negotiations and stuff i personally don't care you know at some point it'll filter through into what's happening in the world but the detail of the negotiation not interesting to me so what I wanted to do with this podcast was really to just provide practical, pragmatic advice and support to help people who are trying to do something to make a difference. And we do that in three three ways with the podcast. My, Let's get to that. 
Yeah. Let's finish our question yeah, sure. sequence and we'll get to more details because cool. that sounds like yeah, there's yeah. lots of lots of places to yeah, have. Yeah, I've lost I've, I've lost completely track of the questions. So you've just no, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It. I, no, it's fine. I'll take. I'll lead you through it. I, I think it's really interesting what you're saying there, and I think we need to pick it up. Um, so, like, a, a contribution is a two-sided thing. How do you contribute to yourself in your life? How do you look after yourself? Because I think that's valid, very valid. It's yeah. easy to put out and put out and put out, but unless we're looking after ourselves, yep. No, it's something I say a lot to my clients as well. Um, and for anyone working in sustainability, it's so easy. Any sort of passion-driven role, mm. so easy to burn yourself out. So, and I've been there, done that, and it's not nice. Um, so, what I think for me, looking after myself is a root of really focus. It trying to focus on where I can actually make a difference. So spending time on things which will have results rather than things which sort of feel that I ought to be doing them um, because they're worthy or, or whatever. And secondly, it's about sort of pacing myself with all of that as well, being realistic about what can, what I can achieve. Spending more time on something isn't necessarily going to get a better result, often mm. spending less time on it. And then the third area, third area <clears throat> is, um, is about spending time spending time in nature and sort of slowing down and connecting with nature. Um, and that's sort of my equivalent of meditation, yoga, whatever I do. I do a bit of running, but I'm not quite sure I enjoy that. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's about spending time in nature. And there's, there's this really powerful effect apart from just like the opportunity just like to slow down and rest is a good thing anyway. Mm -hmm. That space for all these different thoughts to emerge rather than just banging away at the keyboard. You know, the, Spending time in nature and noticing nature has really sort of powerful, psycho beneficial psychological effects on us, which are you know really helpful for everybody, but particularly if you're trying to do this sort of work. Mm. Yes, it is. It is all that sort of stuff. Is end of the day looking after self care is so critically important to a successful life. Yeah, and I've I've spoken to so many people that burned out and, and been dealing with the consequences for years. So it is wonderful to. So, you know, I, I encourage all my guests to have an answer for that question. And, and I must admit, I, I obviously pick the right ones because most of them do. <laughs> <laughs> so what about meaning for you? What does it all mean? <clears throat> What's the purpose of humanity and, and, and meaning of it all for you? So for me, I think it's about, it's about connection. Mm. Um, connection and belonging. And <clears throat> I think actually the sense of, Belonging is really important to me because I, f I feel a sense of a lack of belonging, in fact. And that is partly goes back to my childhood, where I had this really strange childhood in a sense. I think, I think I've since discovered that it's quite common, particularly amongst um, sort of children of um, people who are in the sort of jobs that take them around the world. They, you know, their parents, you know, on whether they're in the army or... You know, behind, you know, multinational, they spend a few years here and a few years there, they're from one international school to the next. And this that's very much my experience of you know living in the different places in the Middle East, growing up in Norfolk for a bit, a bit of time in Cambridge, Orkney, boarding school, and but from you know, always being an outsider, always being you know, the foreigner. I mean, anyone who comes outside if comes from outside the comes out comes from outside the village in in Norfolk pretty much as a foreigner but um it's not a sense of a sense of belonging I think it's something really really important for me I think it's also something that we've actually pretty much lost as a, many people have lost as a society 
due to all sorts of dislocation and people moving around. Um, and that's sort of, you know, that sense of connection to place, connection to other people, connection to nature, and a sense of belonging. I think that's really, really important to me. Mm, yes, I can see that. And, and I can see that you, that idea, that thing about moving around so much would have, would have, would have, would have broken those connections you had constantly having to constantly make new connections. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, I don't regret it. It has also no, no, it, it, it makes you see, see that. Yeah. It's made you who you are. That's yeah. the point. It's made I you think, who you are. Yeah. I mean, does that mean you've, you've made it, you make a lot of effort locally in your community where you are now? I, I have, have in the past and things have, that's been uh, that's been really important, particularly when the children were younger. It's much yes. easier to do that. It's easy. I agree. It's much very difficult when you're older. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, and I'm sure anyone who's tried this will might have similar experiences. But you think, right? I'll get involved in things like the community council or whatever, and it's like, oh my god, kill me now! I mean, it's, it is weird, isn't it? <laughs> it's like look, I I know exactly what you mean. You want to get involved in community, and you go and do a bit of it. And you think to yourself, why am I here? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. You know, we're not, we don't have the tools to deal with this. We haven't been taught how to do this because we never grew up in them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah we, you know, there's, there's a lot to be, I know, I know it was probably all for the age of deference, but, you know, when everybody went to the same church, the wealthy and the poor, and we all intermixed with each other and, and we all, sadly, knew our place badly. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah. the point, but the point is, we did have, you know, an interaction with these people, and we knew how to do this sort of thing, and we've lost all of that. It just went. Yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think that's, I think that's something that's really, really lacking. I think that seems to be asked, what, you know, what, what's, you know, what's the meaning of life? Or that, yeah. that's something, it's quite something. A question like that is like, it's about finding, finding and maintaining and nurturing those connections yeah. where you can. And yeah, I think it's about. I think again, it comes back to the thing about individualism. You know, it's like but the community what makes us, requires what makes us it requires a shared purpose. That's what I think about it. I mean, you, I, I've tried mm. getting together with a group of people who don't have anything in common as such, and there's no glue. Nothing holds them together. When you're together, because there's a sharedness about it, it's a very different feeling. Yes, I think that's different in different types of. Community, I think okay. in, I think I think in in, in intentional communities, in modern intentional communities, we say, well, let's get together and mm. do something. That shared purpose is really important. <clears throat> I think in more traditional communities, um, is particularly, yeah. I think thinking about living in Norfolk, living in living in living in Orkney as well. In rural communities, there's this sense of, um, it's probably the same in towns in the past, less so now. This sense of you have to rely on other people around you, it, you, you know, because so much of the service, it's not about the services delivered by the council or you buy everything from Amazon. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, even if you don't get on with your neighbor, you don't like them, you still have to spend time with them because you're helping out on the, you know, helping them out on their farm when it's time to get the hay in and, and stuff like that. So, yeah, the sense of, there's a sense of a shared, there's a, it's, not, it's a purpose is like, we need to get on, we need to, live here together yes. that's maybe yes. a purpose in a different yes. sense but it's not a uh, yeah I mean, it's an old story but uh, there's a, a an old guy dead now jack hargreaves who he was a tv pro presenter in the 70s and an old farmer but he was telling a story about how every house when he was a child had a pig at the bottom of the garden mm -hmm. 
and the pig at some point would be led up the garden path and slaughtered outside the kitchen. Hence the term yeah. led up the garden path. Sorry, oh, came from. didn't know that one. Um, and so the pig would be slaughtered. And so each family would slaughter their pig at different times and everybody would share the meat out down yeah. the road. So everyone had fresh pork every week because the pig was killed. And then they had fridges, so they, you know, the pork had to be prepared. But it's, it, you know, it's everybody. It was like everybody had this communal yeah. pig, if you like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you still took part in that, even if you weren't the best of pals, because yes. that's what you did. Yes. Because otherwise, you didn't get pork. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I get shared, I shared purpose thing. Yeah. Yeah. So look, that concludes it really in terms of your this story of your life, and I can yeah. see where how you got into the sustainability world. So what is it you do now? And, you know, what, what's been the journey since then? I mean, obviously, you're now in sustainability and you're changing the world, no doubt. And if you would like to find out how Osbert is changing the world, I suggest you tune into the second part of this conversation with Osbert Lancaster. So make sure you follow along to get the notifications. And that was Life, Passion and Business with Paul Harvey and my guest, Osbert Lancaster. Now, Osbert is not a big social media user, but you can find him on LinkedIn. So do check him out there. And also his website, which is realize.earth. It's a very unusual URL. Quite unique, I think. So do check out his details uh, on, on LinkedIn or on his website. There is also the podcast, Leadership for Sustainability which you can find on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. And as always, those links will be available at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com. Hopefully you have been following this podcast for a while and have explored the five questions for yourself. But if not, what's stopping you? You know, after hundreds of interviews, I can say with a hand on my heart that having answers to the questions about our passion a picture of success, an awareness of contribution, thoughts around the one question and a sense of what it all means. That is the path to a good life. Now look, you don't need me to tell you that our world is changing faster than at any other time, certainly any time that I can remember. And we must be sure to know who we are and what we want out of this journey because we will not get it unless we choose it. So please give it some thought because, you know, your future depends on it. And if you'd like some help with that process, do check out the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com where you will find the five questions, ebook and worksheets. Now, this stuff is packed with exercises to help you on the journey towards self-discovery. And it's at the amazing price of just $12.99. So do check that out at the resources tab at lifepassionandbusiness.com. Now, finally, has this podcast been useful to you? If so, please consider giving us a five-star review on the app of your choosing and, of course, sharing it with a friend because that's how people like yourself find good podcasts. And that's it from me until Sunday. As always, thank you so much for being here with me on this journey. I so appreciate your time and attention. I'll catch you next time. All the best.